The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Mark chapter 3 is where we are. I almost want to say Mark chapter 4 because that's kind of where we hope to get by the end of tonight's session. We have been discussing basically what is often referred to as the unpardonable, I like to call it the ungetoverable uh, sin, the sin that is unto death, according to the quotation that we find in our context and such, for about five weeks. Now, that's not five weeks back to back. That's really about three weeks as far as the time we've had. I was out of town. We sang on one of those other weeks, but it's been going on for a little while. And we've had some very good discussions surrounding that, and I want you to know how much I appreciate that. Uh, hopefully tonight we'll get down to the final context of that understanding and really kind of nail things down as where they go and how we understand this. I uh, tried to look at this from a couple of different perspectives. One, just answering that question, kind of questioning, you know, what is the unpardonable sin? And if so, is it something we can commit today? Uh, what was re Jesus referencing when he made the statements that he did toward those around him and such? And the context bears out all of that. That's absolutely true about the context. We also looked at on last week, I believe it was, at least 13 different times from chapter 1 and verse 1 up into the end of chapter 3 where Jesus absolutely had established his supreme authority over all things. And so what these people are doing when they come to Jesus, when they, especially the Pharisees often would, when they approach Jesus and make accusation against him, such as is made in this context, that the works that he does, the miracles, if you will, that he does, are done not by the power of God, but by the power of Beelzebub. You can insert in that for understanding the devil. There's more to that than that. But when they make that accusation against him, what they are doing, as I tried to express a few weeks ago a couple different times, because they could not deny, if you will, or dispute what he was doing, their only solution to that was to degrade or, if you will, to demonize what he was doing. And I added a couple words to that just to kind of improve the phrases there. But that is the way that it worked with Christ. The things that he did were ungetoverable. The miracles that he did were absolutely without question. They were clear, and those who were there and who were present, and even us today reading of such, we ought to see those as absolute positive miracles. Those are truths. Those are set in stone. There are no way to be argued, no way to be uh, thrown out, no way to be ignored. But at the same time, uh, at the same time, their accusation against him was in this instance at least just to simply deny where that source came from. They couldn't deny that it happened, but they would deny the source of the miracles that he did. And so beginning with our context again, just to read down at least, verse 21, Mark chapter 3, Mark 3, 21. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. Verse 22, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub. Probably better interpreted Beelzebul. That is to say that he is the, the Lord of the flies. And that's just the, the tide of that. He's the Lord of the dung hills, technically there. He's not worth anything. His source or his force behind these miracles are of no credit. And by the prince of the devils, that would be Satan, he casteth out devils. And he called unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? That's his first argument. Answer is he wouldn't and he couldn't. 
The next part of that, verse 24, if the kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Answer to that, it would not stand, it could not stand. Next in verse 25, if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Ungetoverable, that's the truth. If Satan is divided against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, verse 26, but hath an end. And then he makes kind of an illustration. That interrogation led to an illustration beginning verse 27. He says this, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind that strong man and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, All sin shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies whatsoever thou whatsoever they shall, be, shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now, that's the immediate context as we've seen many times. We've read across it. We've been hitting it from several different positions, but that's what Mark has to say. One of the things I've tried to establish with you, and I know you already know where I'm going with this, but context matters. Any context that you read, no matter what it is, if I were to take and just read, for example, verse 27, or, or I should say 20, 28 and 29, and read that, just make that statement right out of the gate, we would have very little, not always none, but at least very little information as to why or what Jesus meant by this. Jesus just making the standalone statement is absolutely true, sure, but our understanding of it, just to simply say that if you blaspheme against the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, verse 29, you have never forgiveness, you're in danger of eternal damnation. Just to see that, that's a very scary thought. At least I would hope it would be, especially with no understanding of it. That ought to be a terrifying thought for us. And even if it were the fact that we could, if we could, commit such a thing. And so that ought to cause people, and it does. It causes people to pause. It causes people to step back. It causes people to question in their minds and roll back through their lives. And all the things they've done or perhaps said, some would point at this and say, well, this is a statement that is made or what have you. But without the context, you see that, and that could be terrifying. And I've tried to divide this text up and look at it from several perspectives. That's one of the things we looked at, what I call the problem of it. And that is oftentimes Christians and non-Christians especially, if they see the Scriptures for what they are, being the Word of God, even then, they don't always look at the context. And so right here we have the passages here. This is one passage. I'm saying by that verse 28 and 29 is a passage. But you have to consider the position of it, the context. And Mark is very clear in illustrating this and the situation of such is the fact that they came and made that accusation against our Lord and said what He has done, all the miracles are listed, all the authority that's been expressed, again, 13 times at least in the first three chapters leading up to this, all of that has only been done because He has a devil or He is of the prince of devils or He works for the devil or however you would word that. They gave the credit to at least the devil, if not something worse. And that's the context or the position of that passage that explains to us that this is something that was peculiar to the way they reacted toward him. And what this Holy Ghost in this case is able to do for them and still does for us today is he stands behind the scriptures that we're able to read and he is the inspiration of those things, at least his uh, uh, 
position in the Godhead. He's the inspiration. He's the breath behind what we read. And so not only to deny the Son of God for who He is, but to deny the, the words of God in the same standard as we see them here would be within itself to spit in the face, I would put it that way, to spit in the face of the Holy Ghost and to say, look, I deny all that there is about you. Therefore, that would make that an unpardonable sin in the fact that someone who does that may never be willing to do what? Repent. I did the, I did the sign for, at least for me, turn. If all you would ever do, or if all anyone would ever do, is look at the evidence that we have for the existence of God, for the power of God, for the authority of God, and even the Word of God, and look toward all that we have and evidence for such, and say that, well, that's of nothing but the devil. Why would they ever choose to turn? Why would their choice in life ever be to repent or to turn toward God? The answer to that is it wouldn't be. But what is important is not just the context or the position of the passage here in Mark. It's so blessed that we have parallels as well. Now the parallels we're going to look at tonight are the other gospel accounts. Remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the, got the four gospel accounts that are available to us. In most cases, and I've had a chart up for several different times when we've been through these studies. In most cases, at least it's mostly the case that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have many things parallel. They almost always totally agree, even in the chronological order of the times in which things existed. Now John, the Gospel of John, doesn't disagree. Don't misunderstand me on that. But John doesn't disagree with what they said, but the purpose for which John wrote, just simply to prove him as the very Son of God, deity within itself, that takes John down a different path. And so John doesn't record all the same instances as what these, what are normally called or often referred to as the synoptic, the summarization of Gospels do, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. But in this case, here in Mark chapter 4, kind of put a marker down right there. Let's look at a couple of the other accounts. For example, go back with me to Matthew chapter 12. This is Matthew's account, or Matthew's version, if you want to call it that, of what we have here in Mark. It's where he goes through. And if you look specifically in Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 31 beginning. Matthew 12, 31 and 32 is where we have that exact, if you will, parallel to what we're reading over in Mark chapter 3. And here's what it says. Wherefore... I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy which is against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Verse 32, Matthew 12. Adding that, he says, and, whatsoever, and whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be given him, but whosoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Now, again, you've got the exact same parallel. You've got the exact same, if you will, I'm calling it the passage here that drives itself right along beside the, nearly in the same lane as what Mark does. But just as Mark does, there's a broader position. There's a broader context. For example, you're still in Matthew chapter 12. Back up to verse 22. That's where you get a lot of this stuff lined up. Here's what has happened in verse 22 and forward to that point. 
And then was brought unto him one possessed of a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed insomuch as the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is this not the son of David? Now, I hadn't done it, but I'm about to do it. I, I'm going to put a mark right there, kind of a slash mark, a pause, if you will, right behind the name of David in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. So think about what's just happened. Similar to what Mark has accounted, although Mark has accounted hundreds of miracles, if you will, if you add in the cities that he healed of people, there would have been thousands of that. But he's already accounted to tons of miracles, miraculous acts, including healings and the casting out of devils and, and demon possession, whatever you would refer to that as. Mark accounts that as well. But right here in this one, immediately... Pushed into the context, verse 22, it says he's just done that. And who was, I'll use this word, impressed by that? Who? All. All the people. All of them were. So everyone who had seen that, there's going to be an exclusion group coming up, but everyone who had just seen what he did, he caused the man who was both in this case possessed, quote, with a devil, both blind and dumb, could not see, could not speak. He just healed that man to the point he could now see and he could now speak and he was no longer devil possessed. And they, the majority, if you want to call it that, were all amazed. It said, and all the people were amazed and said, is this not the son of David? Now looking back, and not for our context really, but to that statement I keep making, when he could not be denied, he would be degraded. Look at what the Pharisees do. Chapter 12, Matthew, verse 24. And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth, not underline the next word here, or circle it however you mark in your Bibles, doth not cast out devils, but, with the exception of, if he does, if you will, by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And Jesus, verse 25, Matthew's account, knew their thoughts, underline that word, and said, every kingdom that is divided against itself shall be brought to desolation. Every house or city that is divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, and he shall not then in his kingdom stand. And if I, Jesus takes defense here, if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Now you see, this is, similar, this is the same account, similar situation here between the parallels, but we've got an instance where Matthew chooses to develop a little piece of information that Mark does not choose to reveal. And that is Jesus basically, I'm imagining this part, but I, would, I don't think he did it because he buried his head and covered his face. Jesus looked him in the eye and said, okay, who do you do it by? If you want to point fingers at me and say that I do great things by only the power of the devil, then where do you, where do, you do your great things from? 
Now, not saying that they were doing miracles, not saying necessarily they were doing anything as he did, but they would have possessed themselves, they would have at least carried themselves, the Pharisees, I mean by that, verse 24, as if they were the greatest, as if they had authority, as if they had power. But Matthew tells us, Jesus said, If I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? What do we see in Jesus, about Jesus right here that we already understand as Bible students, but maybe the Pharisees hadn't gotten yet? I'm putting it in country language. He wasn't no candy cane. He wasn't going to bow down to them just because of an accusation they made. He wasn't, as we say, going to tuck tail and run every time they said something to stand against him. He wasn't a coward. And so he looks into the greatest quote, unquote, these are large quotes and they're very wise as far as I can reach, the greatest religious body of his day possessed authority of the Pharisees, and he says to them something that would stand them up and make them have to try to answer. And he did that based on him doing a few things, including knowing their thoughts. When he knew their thoughts, he makes that statement. And then he goes on there. We're not done with verse 27. Therefore, they shall be your judges. If I cast out devils, watch what he tells them, by the Spirit of God, verse 28, then the kingdom is come unto you. What do you do there? In a sense, and I don't have time to expound on this, in a sense, Matthew just recorded that Jesus stood up, faced their challenge, and then preached basically the gospel to them. He just looked them in the eye, provoked them, I would assume, to anger to some point. Could have even been seen as offensive to them, and probably was. But says to them that the Spirit of God, then the kingdom is now of God, is come to you. I'm giving you opportunity, he says, to see the true authority behind this. Then he used that same illustration about the strong man's house. You've got to bind the strong man first. You can't spoil the house. You can't take the goods until you do. Verse 30, And thou, and he that is not with me, this is another thing that, Jesus, uh, that Matthew Chews throws in here, that we usually, I quote it all the time, but not always in exact context. He added this, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Now see, that, that lets them know a few things. One, it lets them know, first of all, my authority doesn't come from Beelzebub. And he's telling them, basically, you already know that. He faces them up and says, look, the kingdom of God is being seen before you. If you would open your hearts to this, you would already know that I am the Messiah that has come, and the kingdom of God is standing here among you and is before you. Back in verse 23, the people recognized him as such. They said, is this not the son of David? That's Who is the son of David but the Messiah? Exactly right, and, yes. And then the, it upset the Pharisees because... They were 
giving that recognition to Christ. And that's when they had to, like you say, discredit him. Mm -hmm. They had to do something because it was making them look bad. And uh, so now we get down here to verse 30, and that's, you know. Well, I think the main reason the Pharisees were so upset with him because he did have the authority. They could tell it. They could tell he had more authority and wisdom than they did. And his wisdom wouldn't let him argue with them because he didn't have a legal standard. That's right. And he was, to them, stripping their authority piece by piece because ultimately they would lose what accounted authority they had had even through that. Yes, exactly. So we get into verse 31 and there's our context developing. He says, look, you're either going to be with me in this or you're going to be against me. You need not, basically his advice right here, I don't I hate to call it advice because his things were not opinion anyway. But his advice to them is, you need to get on my side. Because being opposite of me is to actually be opposite of me. And to stand against me. And then he makes a connection to him being, quote, the son of man, which was often a reference to himself, even in that. And then look in verse 33. Either make thee the tree good, and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt, and his fruit corrupt. But the tree is known by his fruit. What's he saying there? He's saying, you, you, are, you can see that I'm good. You can see who I am. And it really should be evident and clear. But you don't even want to see the fruit. So that's Matthew's account to such. Now, let's turn to another passage. Let's go to Luke's account. Matthew gave us a few snippets of information. Again, that Luke, I'm sorry, that Mark had not given as of yet. Look in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. The precise parallel is Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. So let's read the passage and then let's put it in position. Verse 8 beginning, Luke chapter 12. And also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men, him will I also deny before the angel of God. Watch this, verse 10. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall be forgiven. Now, you're probably very familiar with Matthew's version of verses 8 and 9, and we oftentimes use that. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33 is a parallel there. And that's the idea of if you confess me before men, I'll confess you. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you. What does Luke tell us about that? That's in the exact direct context of a monster. That's my word, not God's. A monster, enormous denial of who he was. Now, it, it still has similar application. still has very similar application that you and I, when we're out and about in the community, on the city streets, as we might call it, we don't need to be denying Christ with our mouths or with our actions. Nonetheless, the application is there that we ought to be confessing Christ with our mouths and with our actions. That's the balance there. But it's in the context of the same situation in which they are denying even the power and the authority of God. You say, well, Jim, how do you know that? Well, because the verses 8 through 10 are a part of that passage that has a position that is much broader. For example, if you're in Luke's account, which you are, if you went over there, look back in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. That's the whole context of this. Just like Matthew expounded, so does Luke as well. 
Luke 1, uh, Luke 12 and verse 1. In the meantime, where they were gathered together, and so much as an innumerable multitude of people, and so much as they trod upon one another and began to say unto his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the hypocrites. There is nothing that shall be covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be made known. I heard that bell. And therefore, whoso, or whatsoever, I'm in verse 3, hath been spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that shall be spoken in the ear and the closets and proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. After that, you have no more that they can do. But will I forewarn you of whom you shall fear? Fear him. That which is he is after killed hath power to cast thee into hell. And yea, I say unto you, fear him. Verse 6. For have not the sparrows been sold for two farthings, and not them to be forgiven of God? But even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more valuable than the sparrows. And then we get to that, verse 8 through 10. But keep reading, verse 11. And when they bring you unto the synagogues, and in the magistrates, and unto, watch this, I've got this kind of in quotations. I'm going to change it to a circle. And the powers, now that's, Earthly powers, they're not the similar powers to what God has, but they're the known powers. Shall take ye no thought for what ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in that same hour what you ought to say. So we've got a whole different context being revealed here in Luke's account, but Luke puts it in direct coordination with the confession of who Jesus really, emphasize the word really, is, emphasizing is, not was. That's who he was before them and who he is before us today. But that's not the conclusion of what Luke says. That's Luke chapter 12. Go back to chapter 11. It's interesting to me that Luke 12 covers that as it does, but it comes right behind another instance that is recorded in Luke chapter 11. And for this, we'll pick up in verse 14. And he, that is Jesus, was casting out the devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. That's the idea of they were amazed as well. Luke eleven fourteen. But some of them said, he casted out devils through Beelzebub, the chief, chief of devils. And others tempting him sought him a sign from heaven. But he, that's Jesus, knowing their thoughts... Said unto them, Every kingdom that is divided against itself shall be brought into desolation, and the house divided against a house shall falleth. And if Satan be divided against himself, it shall not, uh, shall not the kingdom stand? Because you say, I'm casting out devils through Beelzebub. And if I, verse 19, by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. Very similar to what Matthew writes. You notice that already. Verse 20, but if I with a finger of, what's that next word? God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. I love the way that Luke chooses, by inspiration obviously, but that Luke chooses to brawl that together in verse 20. He says, I'm doing this by the very finger of God. And no doubt the kingdom of God it's come upon you. Then he adds that. 
If a strong man is armed and keep this palace, his goods are in peace. But when a, this is something that's really key to understanding what Mark says. Verse 22. If a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherewith he is trusted and divideth his spoils. Then he says, verse 23, He is not with me, is against me, but he that scattereth not with me shall be scattered. What does Luke bring out in Luke 11 that is hard to see in Mark 4? That strong man that's bound up meets a stronger man. I'm a terrible, I can't even represent that. He meets Jesus. Jesus cannot be denied. He really cannot be discredited. But I'll add a new phrase to that. He can oftentimes be disregarded. That is the thing that any of us can be guilty of. Looking at what God has done and all the records that we have and even our own lives and looking at that and just disregarding it as if it has no effect and no meaning in our lives. Now, to sum that up, in Mark's account, were these men guilty in the moment of committing this sin that is unto death? Yes, if. If what? If they were never willing to repent. Is it possible for us to commit a sin unto death today? Unless we refuse to repent. This, this right here is a special instance. It's a special situation. He's dealing with a special people. He's dealing with a thing that doesn't always parallel exactly to what situation we are in. But the sin that we are unwilling to turn from is a sin that we carry into eternity. Now, here's something interesting. We've got to close. In verse 29, Mark's account... He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. That word, words, it's two words in the English, one in the Greek. That word for eternal damnation, King James translation there, could very well be translated as an eternal sin. That is an unforgiven an unrepented sin. And so that's the context which this falls. Questions or comments?